Hello, a little disclaimer up top here. We actually recorded this episode for release in 2020 uh, because it was looking like the sequel to Coming to America was going to be released around Christmas time. Obviously that didn't happen, it's now 2021, so we delayed our tie-in episode accordingly, which is something we've done quite a few times over the last 12 months or so, what with the coronavirus pandemic playing havoc on Hollywood's release schedule. This episode was made available slightly early to people on our Patreon, and there's also a Kingsman 2 episode and an episode about the Purge series, which we released early on there, which are being held back until those new films eventually come out, whenever that's going to be. Find them at patreon.com forward slash dimreturns. Anyway, that's why we talk about there not being a trailer out and that sort of thing. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to Diminishing Returns. My name is Alan. As always, I'm joined by Sol. Hello. And uh, this week we are joined by our regular 80s correspondent, Gareth. Hello, nice to be with you. (laughs) Hello, Gareth. Yes, we've gone back to the 80s. It's Eddie Murphy again uh, this week. Oh, Lord. Coming to America. You are the only person we know old enough to remember (laughs) the 80s. Yeah. Eddie Eddie Murphy was the man. I guess we're going straight into this. We're dealing with um, Coming to America, the uh, the 80s classic, because there is a sequel coming out. We'll talk about that later. But just as you bring that up, Gareth, I, I made a little note uh, here. The 80s films that Eddie Murphy did. Mm. This is his run of films. So it was 48 Hours, Trading Places, Best Defense, which is a Dudley Moore film in which he seemed to play a supporting role, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop, the Golden Child, which is the best film ever made, <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop 2, Coming to America, and then he, he rounded off the decade with Harlem Nights, which he wrote and directed. As I t- well as listen, I totally agree that Are you that trying... is a fantastic run of film. <laughs> and th- I think Harlem Nights was the end of that run. And you've done the right thing in ending that list there. Because there's <laughs> almighty drop-off in quality after that, which, which has lasted well, that, that's for the 30 eight, years. That's the 80s. The 1989 yeah. Harlem Nights. But yeah, that is, you know, fresh off of um, uh, Saturday Night Live. He's 23 years old or whatever, doing 48 hours. Like, that is a hell of a decade. And apart from one of those films, he's the lead. He's the major, major guy in those films. He was box office. Yeah, okay, The Golden Child is being slightly sarcastic. But it is a film I remember from my childhood as like, and it's it's a fantastic film. It's not a good film. <laughs> it's funny. It's, Eddie Murphy is funny. We bizarre. talked about this in Beverly Hills Cop. You know, he's it, 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 the 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 films can be a little bit sketchy. They're a little bit sort of set a series of set pieces, and we can talk about that a little bit in this film. But they're bloody funny set pieces. You know, he's a he's a naturally funny guy. I'm really glad that you both clarified that that was a list of films that were supposed to demonstrate how great he is because. I don't know, to me it just sounded like a list of films I either hadn't heard of, <laughs> have seen in a fairly mediocre, and then like two decent ones in there. Oh, come on. So, Sol, are you, are you <laughs> saying that you're a fan of, of 90s and noughties, Eddie Murphy? Of the clumps? Oh, man. And the Nutty Professor? <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that your oeuvre? Second phase Murphy. Family-friendly Murphy. 
I've I've certainly seen more of those Eddie Murphy films. That's the age difference, <laughs> I suppose. But I, 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 to be honest, I've hardly seen most of those films. They, you know, they. I, I think I may have tried one or two of them. And I've written a note here when, when I was making notes about this, and I listed those same films that Alan listed. And then I've written, "What happened, man?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, we, we talked about this in Beverly Hills Cop, uh, the episode we did, mm. uh, in which Gareth joined us for that as well. We covered the whole trilogy. So go back into our archives uh, to find that. And um, I, I found a quote or some such thing from John Landis, who directed this, of course. And he said he'd worked with Eddie Murphy at three stages of his career. So he did Trading Places, when Eddie Murphy was the the absolute best. He was brilliant in everything he did. Mm. And then he said, coming to America, where Eddie Murphy was, you know, a bit of a... He was an established star. He was a bit full of himself, uh, um, and perhaps a little bit bloated and not physically, but, you know, in terms of, mm. you know, he thought everything he did was great. Yeah. And then did Beverly Hills Cop 3 when Eddie Murphy was just depressed and mm. couldn't put the effort in and, and couldn't bring that film to life. And, yeah. you know, maybe that's just a natural arc, you know, of celebrity, of, of stardom. Perhaps. The, you can't keep going up. There's got to be a come down at some point. But he's still making money, isn't he? Like, as I said, we, you know, those later films, I don't think they're anywhere near as good, but they make lots of money. Mm. Well, that's it. We've already we've we've already left behind uh, second stage Murphy, haven't we? Like, uh, we're into third stage. Come on, no, I really can act. Mm-hmm. Give me an Oscar, Murphy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know. Well, it, it, we're into attempted comeback murphy yeah it's every couple of years now he'll make a decent film or a go at a decent film but none of them are quite having the rejuvenating effect on his career that i think he would like like dolomite is my name was last year's one uh and that was very much you know i'm sure i'm sure it was very close i'm sure he was very nearly on the ballot for the oscars that year and is that is that a forgive me, Sol? I haven't seen that film. I didn't get where I am today by watching films made after nineteen eighty nine. Is that <laughs> film a serious film or is it a comedy? It's it's billed in most places as a comedy, but I think it's very much one of the. I, I would call it a drama. It's that kind of Ed Wood yeah. comedic drama, yeah. if that makes. It's, sense. it's not what I might yeah. call an Eddie Murphy comedy. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. based on a real story with real people he's playing a real person but you know there's a sense of humor to the whole thing mm-hmm. but he's not doing much he's only done like five films in the last 10 years really uh he's not exactly bashing them out anymore. really the thing is though i think uh, so, certainly eddie murphy at one point reached the stage where he had 10 children to women who no longer loved him and he was paying half all over the place <laughs> uh, and so um you know the guy had some bills to pay but apparently, maybe that's not the case. He's certainly not just churning out work on a Nicolas Cage level. So maybe he's all right financially. He can pick the work. Mm. But again, when we talked about the, we, I go back to the Beverly Hills Cop episode again. You know, the first two films, I think we dis, I think Sol disagreed on this. The first two films are classic Eddie yeah, Murphy comedies. Dog shit. And the third one is just <laughs> awful. And that's yeah. after yeah. that fall away. So the fact that it was a Beverly Hills Cop film was irrelevant it was the fact that something had changed something had happened and what worries me is is this new coming to america film which incarnation of eddie murphy do we see i i would be very surprised if eddie murphy doesn't care about this project this to me reads like a few years probably probably nearly a decade ago now but there was a point very specifically where jim carrey realized that his career had 
completely fallen off the rails and wanted to get back on track by making sequels to his beloved classics that people liked him for Mm. and they put a proper Bruce Almighty sequel into development that never materialised and they began rolling cameras on Dumb and Dumber 2 Uh, and I think the the fact that Dumb and Dumber 2 was not very good or well received um, put an end to that Mm. but it was a very clear point where this guy who didn't do sequels thought I'm going to revitalise my career with a bit of nostalgia. But Eddie Murphy has never been afraid of doing sequels. Just no one wanted a Coming to America sequel until now. Yeah, but but he's he's really put, again, over the last few years, it's, you know, this long gestating twins sequels been moving forward. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 4's lurched into life again, and Coming to America is finally upon us coming to america that's two number two very clever very clever because it's tough it's t-o and they've done a two instead it's brilliant brilliant and listener uh we should point out we are talking about coming to america this week i don't know if we've actually yes not coming to america so let's jump back 35 years 32 years 1988 uh so yes eddie murphy is a, a bona fide star by this point he can do whatever he wants and he chooses to do this now it's it's written by who is it david sheffield and barry blaustein who i looked them up because i didn't recognize the names and they mm. they done a, couple, a few eddie murphy films they seem to they they're a writing partnership but they seem to have come from saturday night live the early years of that so they probably knew Eddie Murphy and worked with him. So they wrote a few films for him. I think they wrote the original Police Academy film as well. Oh, genius! <laughs> Just, <laughs> I've been, I've been for the listeners' benefits. I've been lobbying Alan and Salt to cover the Police Academy films for about four years, and they won't do it. <laughs> I I watched all the Police Academy films a matter of maybe a month or two months. Well, ago, I'm ready so whenever you are. <laughs> We'll, we'll slip it in. And, yeah. So th- those writers, like I said, I think they'd worked with Eddie Murphy before. So I don't know if this was written specifically for him. I suspect it is. And I'll tell you why I suspect that is. This character is specifically a black character. Mm. Um, <laughs> and if you weren't going to write for Eddie Murphy, who was <laughs> going to play this in 1988? Well, I'll tell you what, Alan. I, I think that um, <laughs> this this film... Is, it's very black. It's very African American, isn't it? You know, the, there's yeah. only really Louis Anderson is the only white actor in the cast. Oh, that must be the guy who plays the Jewish man in the barber shop, right? <laughs> no, no, Eddie Murphy doing Jew face. Um, <laughs> we'll come back to that in a second. We will. No, no, no. But seriously, Louis Anderson, who plays the the guy working in McDowell's, like a fry cook. Um, oh, yeah. He's the only he's the only white character in the whole film, isn't he? Which which is interesting. Uh, it's yeah. It's it's a very black film. It's a very African American film. Yeah, it's full of black characters. I, I guess I hadn't quite thought of that uh, as a thing, but yeah, you're right. There's just one white guy in there in the middle. Doesn't really do anything. There's a lot of white supporting faces, though. You know, you, you, like the taxi driver who drops them off is oh, okay, an extended yeah. sequence with a white guy. But but I think it's interesting that in the '80s there were in American media. I think there were these TV programs that were made for that audience. But th- this film wasn't. It wasn't made for, you know, like a like say a black exploitation film in the seventies. This was made for mm. a global audience, and yet it had that same sensibility. The thing is, though, like in terms of representation, does it count? Because they are all played by Eddie Murphy, <laughs> various wigs and makeup. Actually, some of them are played by um, Arsino, Hall. Arsino Hall in this one. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, um, yeah, let's just... Uh, a quick basic summary of the plot. An African prince travels to America to try and sort of find himself and get away from his uh, closeted lifestyle to experience a bit of real life, but more mm. specifically, to find himself a wife. Uh, a wife worthy of his intellect rather than just someone uh, set up to please him. But he is of a uh, a fictional nation and he is very wealthy. It's it's not like he's from a collapsed... Oh yeah, where I say African uh, prince, it's not some like... Weird... <laughs> He's he's actually a prince. He's not just a Nigerian email scam. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the nation he comes from is. Can you remember what it was called? Zamunda. Zamunda. That was it. Yeah. So Zamunda's probably quite oil rich. I think. <laughs> I guess. Is that what you get? Well, I mean, judging from the ostentatious style that they uh, keep themselves in, the amount of paste jewelry that James oh. Earl Jones is wearing. <laughs> Must must have cost thirty five dollars at least. He looked like a selection box. He had this gold <laughs> necklace on that looked like sort of foil covered chocolates, and then his crown looked like wine gums stuck to it. It's ridiculous! It looked like a it looked like he won a novelty crown in a sweet shop competition or something. Eddie Murphy is, of course, uh, this young African prince, James Earl Jones, uh, as his father, the king. And uh, and Madge Sinclair um, as his mother, the Queen, who, by the way, is the voice of Simba's mother in The Lion King. Uh, so they they paired up again for The Lion King. Mm. Uh, well, what I really liked about James Earl Jones in these early scenes is the lasciviousness that he manages to put across. Like he's always just got this cheeky smile on his face, like going, "Oh yeah, my son, you're gonna go sow your wild oats, aren't you? Eh? Yeah, <laughs> you you do sleep with your bathers, don't you? I do, yeah." <laughs> and, and with, but still with those same silky tones that James Earl Jones has. Because later on, he's mostly just a serious, like, "Oh, I've come to sort you out" kind of thing. I found there were several times in this film where there were lines and things that were said that we still do in our house. So, for example, if my wife asks me, you know, what do you fancy for dinner? I might say, whatever you like. <laughs> you know, what we're setting up here is um, this film is a feminist statement. <laughs> it's all about uh, how... Uh, You're yeah. gonna really going to have to back that up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but the, the, the general idea is that he doesn't want just uh, an arranged marriage who uh, who's you know there to serve him he wants a woman with intellect a woman who's not just there for her looks and for her kind of practical uses as a wife and mother he wants a woman who's her own person here's my question and i might be overthinking this but how has prince akim of zamunda acquired those enlightened views from his palace mm. in zamunda that, that i did think watching that, hollywood yeah. movies uh, <laughs> to america probably <laughs> Like, in reality, if I, I've got this Saudi prince in my head, in reality, those people go to Oxbridge and then they go to Sandhurst. So they are somewhat westernised. Yeah. But Akeem hasn't done that. Otherwise, he would know what basketball was. So <laughs> how is he simultaneously this fish out of water and naive and enlightened? But yeah, you've just it's one of those things. It's like, hey, it's a comedy. Like, let's not get too, too uh, involved. Eddie Murphy is doing some kind of accent here. Now, he's, yeah. not, he's not gone for an African accent accent of any type it's just a sort of vaguely slightly off his normal voice i think it is it's a, it's the sort of generic african accent that my dad might do if he was let's say my dad was <laughs> no. doing a nelson mandela impression i think it was much less offensive than that. this is what he would sound like it's definitely a stab at an african accent i think but it's obviously very non specific it 
had they made Black Panther 20 or 30 years earlier, I think they would sound like this, because they would think, right, I love the accent you're doing there, but we've got to be able to make sure the white man can understand what's being said in this film, so dial it back. Arsenio Hall is doing a bit of an accent as well, but nobody else is. James Earl Jones isn't. Well, James Earl Jones naturally has whatever the hell accent he has. I mean, whatever Eddie Murphy's doing. Gravitas, mate. Is he from Michigan or something? He he does. What is James Earl Jones' accent? Because he's from America, isn't That's he? That's Shakespearean actor accent. That is. <laughs> is, it, is it? Is that? Is that him doing that kind of Kelsey Grammer? <laughs> Upper class thing. But <laughs> That's actually very rhythm. well observed. He's Kelsey Grammer slowed down, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Is somebody playing the Fraser theme tune at the wrong speed? <laughs> Toss salad and scrambled eggs. He kind of he always speeds up at the end of his sentence. He's very. He's got a very specific cadence. <laughs> this goes back to what I was saying about this being an African American film. There's a comparison to be made with Black Panther about this kind of Pan African pride. You know, I would guess that most films in the 80s and 70s that covered Africa would be very much from a colonial point of view, period dramas. And and this was very much, you know, these people are sophisticated and they've got money and they're in charge. So you're saying the film is both racially sensitive and a feminist statement? No, you said feminist statement, Mark. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one putting my foot in the racial pot. <laughs> So, right, yeah, so uh, what happens is Eddie Murphy decides he wants to go and uh, sow his royal oats, uh, so he goes to America with Arsenio Hall, who's like his mate, basically. And I no, think he, he he decides to go looking for a, a love, uh, a legitimate partner under the guise of yes. deciding to sow his oats, yeah. Yes, so he has 40 days in the wilderness. Shall we talk a little bit about Arsenio Hall before we go to New York? Because he can't act, can he? I was hoping one of you could explain what the deal is with him. Cause... Well, he's a comedian. He's a, he was a, he was was a com- stand up comedian, and then he became a chat mm. show host. But I think that chat show might have come after this, or around about the same yeah, time. Yeah, it was after this. Yeah. Okay, Arsenio Hall is not particularly primarily known for an actor, but I think he's perfectly good in this, like this level of acting. What you need. He's every bit as good an actor as Eddie Murphy, isn't he? Oh come on now, Eddie Murphy <laughs> is a very good actor. I'm not having it. I think the problem is he. He's given himself all these different characters to play, but they're basically all the same, except for the priest who is so big a character. Like, it's just not even... You know, I didn't come here to preach to you today, but you know, when I look at these contestants for the Miss Black Awareness pageant, I feel good. I feel good because I know there's a God somewhere. There's a God somewhere. Turn around, ladies, for me, please. I don't know. It's a ridiculous, ridiculous performance. Yeah, but that's a sketch, isn't it? The whole, the whole scene in the church is, but is not, an extended not a sketch. good sketch. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a Little Britain series two <laughs> performance. Well, that's another line that we still use in our house. If if anybody's religious, then there's a god somewhere. Comes out. <laughs> but I think that voice you just did there is better than the voice he's doing. It's kind of like with with like big <laughs> teeth Winston. in his. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, with an American accent, but you know, it it just seems like a character where the voice is di- dictated by the makeup job, though. You know, <laughs> restricting his ability to 
perform. I think I feel like you're both being very harsh on Arsenio Hall. I think there's a very good job here. Look, if it wasn't for the fact that I'm aware that Eddie Murphy likes to play lots of characters in his films, and therefore every time someone appeared who looked a bit like they might have lots of makeup on, like I was analysing everyone to be like, is that Eddie Murphy? If it wasn't for that, <laughs> he might have just slipped by in this film for the most part. I would have just thought, you know, Oh, okay, whatever. That like the character he plays in the in the barbershop, for example. He's going for broke doing a big character, but it's just I don't know, it felt like it could have been anyone. Yeah, but Eddie Murphy Eddie Murphy dominates those scenes as well. But then like is it just me? I don't really I don't really know what this film gains from having Eddie Murphy play that guy in the barbershop. But gains Eddie Murphy. A... He wouldn't have done it if he didn't get to play eight different characters. <laughs> <laughs> well the thing is, right, you got when we first see, so we go to America and there's a barbershop nearby. We go into the barbershop and we just have a little skit with them. And it's like, that was sort of, okay, that was a nice funny little character bit. But and absolutely then we keep irrelevant. going back. But then they do sort of bring it back in to make it slightly relevant. They pull those characters in <laughs> tangentially um, to at least justify them being there. In my opinion, those scenes are, are the funniest scenes in the film. I think that the, it's, it's great banter. Robinson, the greatest fighter ever lived. Oh, come on, man. What about Joe Lewis? The Blonde Bomber. Now that was a great boxer. You damn right. I suppose nobody in here ever heard of Cassius Clay. We got a point. Cassius Clay was a bad motherfucker. Yeah, hey, I ain't saying Clay ain't bad. I'm just saying I stopped liking Cassius Clay. What's the change name to Muhammad Ali? What kind of shit is that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I agree with you that it's it, the film would survive without them. You know, it's not entirely relevant to the plot. But that's the nature of Eddie Murphy's films. We have these little comedic set pieces that just gradually move the plot along. And they're great set pieces. You know, the, the riffing that he's doing is funny. The way the, the characters, albeit they're all him, the way they play off against each other is funny. <laughs> I, think I think it's good. I think it's a really funny sequences, set of sequences. Yeah, I like them as well. And I like that like his old Jewish guy um, is uh, actually not immediately obvious that it's him. Mm. Which is, makes a bit of a change. Now, that was I remember that being on the news. The, this new Eddie Murphy film had come out, and look at this—he's playing a, an old Jewish guy. And it was like there was a photograph of him, a still photograph on the news. On the <laughs> it was a really big deal. He didn't go with the Chinese guy, like in Norbit. <laughs> you know what? I I'd like to give Eddie Murphy a bit of credit for for this, you know, because as poorly judged or or ill-conceived as you know playing mr what's he called mr mr wong or something and norbit is <laughs> may as well be yeah. i i as it happens i watched mrs brown's boys the movie earlier oh, today why um you lose a bet. i've got a thing no i've just i've got a thing for movies based on british sitcoms <laughs> it, it was on a list um, I also watched Darren Aaron Aaron Aronofsky's Pie, so you know I was balancing out the the lowbrow with the highbrow. But in that film, now I don't know if this is in the the TV show as well. It probably is, but I, I've never really watched Mrs. Brown's Boys before, other than a clip here and there. There's a character played by the guy who plays Mrs. Brown That's in the man? movie called Yes, it's not Angelica Houston in in the uh, TV show. <laughs> The guy who plays Mrs. Brown also plays a character called Mr. Wang. And if you can believe this in 2014, um, I'm guessing it must be from the show. I don't know. But it is just him with like Japanese Bond style orange 
tan on his face and a dodgy wig squinting his eyes and mispronouncing his r's and l's there's nothing to it really i mean you're saying like can you believe this in 2000 i don't think i can believe that no. oh no i, I was gobsmacked i, don't I was think genuinely that, they're not actually doing that on tv now are they I think it must have been in the TV show and somehow been considered acceptable in the movie because it got grandfathered it was part of the in. show. Hang on a minute, I think I've heard of this. Is this is this ironic racism? <laughs> well, there was one line in it where I didn't quite hear what they say, but I think they were basically saying I think someone said like, "You know what you're on about, you're Chinese." And he said like, "I'm not Chinese, I'm from Shanghai or something." And then someone else was like, "No, he's not. He's from bloody Runcorn or whatever." So I think maybe the joke was he's just some guy who pretends to be a racist caricature, and that's how they get away with it. Mm. But but the point I was leading to is he's not even doing it well. And to give Eddie Murphy some credit, as as ill thought out, uh, as ill conceived, as tasteless perhaps as some of those you know performances that he've he's done in the past have been, at least he kind of does the voice well. <laughs> he does, yeah. yeah. It's a convincing, does a convincing job. Back to the plot, our 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 duo of Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall have found a a crappy apartment uh, because they want to live like peasants to see what real life is like uh they get a job at mcdowell's uh which is definitely not mcdonald's um mcdowell's is such a weird concept in this film because it seems to exist initially as a jokey we can't use mcdonald's in our film kind of thing (laughs) but then yeah mcdonald's exists in the universe and becomes a big thing that this guy is in a, a sort of legal dispute with them so I, I can only assume that's maybe like the second or third iteration of a joke. <laughs> you know, it's like it's evolved to the point that it's got all these different layers to it. But it, yeah, it's a very weird... I like it. It's, it's just that, you, you know, this yeah, guy, he's just a bit of a it. chancer, you know. He's like, look, I'm going to call my restaurant. I'm, my name's McDowell. I'm going to call it McDowell's if you want. And like, On the subject of McDowell, I think John Amos is great in this. I, I, he, he comes good in the end, but basically the character's like a, mm. you know, he's a money-grabbing narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a bit of a dick but i like him I, th- I think he does a great job yeah i i think he's um i think he's very good in this and i don't if i if i seen him in anything has he done anything of well, most beyond he's kunta kinte he's in roots have you ever seen roots uh, i've not seen roots no no yeah, he, he was in uh what you've seen um oh god what was it called the thing with adam sandler as a jewel Oh, that, uncut that gems. stressful film, that one that gave me a is he uncut in gems. Yeah, when he goes yeah. up to the, he takes his son up to that apartment to use the toilet, and he, he knocks on John Amos's house, oh, and it is, is like it's him? the actor John Amos. <laughs> he's, like, he's not like it's supposed to be him playing himself, <laughs> and, and he's oh, like, yeah, oh, okay. I loved you in uh, Coming to America. Can I use your toilet, please? <laughs> uh, yeah. So now uh, the the basic concept is Eddie Murphy's character Akim has uh, got eyes for this lady who is uh, working at McDowell's because her father owns it, and so they get jobs there. And so you got the whole bit where he's trying to seduce her. She's uh, she's engaged to an heir to the Soul Glow fortune, <laughs> which is a beautiful bit of 80s comedy. I don't know if it quite translates the whole Soul Glow thing. Listen, uh, sorry to do this again, but this is another thing that we say in our house all the time. Anyone product in their hair, it's Soul Glow. <laughs> Semi who is uh, Arsenio Hall's character. He's sick of it. He wants to display their wealth. And uh, Akeem is trying to 
woo this woman uh, with his personality rather than his fortune. Um, that's basically the whole function of the film. Um, oh, uh, Samuel Jackson robs the restaurant. Oh, that's a good scene. A very young Samuel L. Jackson, yeah. It, it really. <laughs> I mean, you say very young, he was 40 years old. By, by, yeah, but I'm, used, <laughs> but I'm used to 70-year-old Samuel L. Jackson, you know? <laughs> Yeah, still, still a drug addict. Samuel Jackson is what we've got here, uh, which is uh, you know early, early for him. Uh, and yeah, uh, so you know, just an, an opportunity for for Akim to show how cool under pressure and how brave he is, uh, impressing the ladies. There's some shenanigans with the younger sister trying to get her involved, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But ultimately, I don't know if you've got any specific things you want to mention, and before I sort of like start rushing to the end. Um. I did make a note that there is some aggressively synthesized saxophone in the uh, <laughs> score <laughs> at a few points. Really? Quite a specific thing to note. <laughs> In fact, can we talk about the music? At the start of this film, there's a kind of... It's very similar to The Lion Sleeps Tonight. <laughs> yeah. But it's not quite. I think I, I made a note that it was African-y music. Is, is The Lion Sleeps Tonight based on something this is also based on? Or... Yeah, it's African music. It's like if I said I want some Japanese music, what would you do? Right, large. <laughs> we'll do some karaoke. <laughs> no. So, the, it, but I think you mentioned this a bit earlier, Gareth. It, it is. It does just feel like a, a kind of just series of set pieces, but mm. it doesn't feel too sketchy. I think it's. I think it's fine. I think it. It's all just pushing the plot forward. We're just seeing further on. But we all know where it's heading. And in fact, I think the relationship between the two of them goes along nicely. That they kind of... She notices him. They sort of become friendly. And he's a shoulder for her to cry on and stuff like that. And, you know, he's just wheedling his way into her affections. Wheedling? Yes. <laughs> Is that the word you're going to go with? Yeah, but in a nice way. <laughs> And I think it works really nicely. It, it, it feels like a good development of a relationship because we've got to establish here that they're going to know each other for a month and then get married at the end. Like, that's what we're dealing with here. So I think they do as good a job of that as you, you can, really. And the rivalry with the boyfriend, the, the fiancé... Um, the what? It, it never really... Fiancé? <laughs> it never really comes to much. Well, the thing is, the, the problem is that Daryl's such a knob. It, there's no competition, <laughs> is there? You know, yeah. he, he's just, his behavior's awful and mm. she doesn't even like him. Yeah. So mm. He's got lovely hair, though. In, in, interesting question for you. Who would you say is the antagonist in this film? Colonel Troutman. Is it, is it Daryl? Is, is it the king? I, I don't know. I, I think there's there's not really an antagonist in this film, and yet we're yeah. still we're still rooting for Akeem. We're still rooting for Eddie Murphy. I guess I guess what my, that was partially what I was getting towards i suppose um yeah daryl is he's set up as if he's going to be antagonist and it doesn't really go anywhere he just disappears doesn't mm. he yeah. no, there's no problem for him and mr mcdowell is could be a problem but then he gets won over really easily and yes the king ultimately is the antagonist at the end but you know that comes right at the end yeah you're right yeah i don't know what, what who the antagonist is but do you, do you know what else which i think is sort of on a similar terms 
the last uh, record you did with us, Gary, I think was Bill and Ted. And we were talking there about how just unendingly chirpy and optimistic they are. And that's what Akeem is. You know, he takes everything with a smile and it's just like everything in life is a wonder. It's like, oh, look, we get to wash the windows. Isn't that amazing? I think it's a lot easier to be like that if you're a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, you never live like common people. Yeah, but but the whole point is that he walks away from that to experience kind of more of a real life and he still embraces it and he enjoys the challenge of it and everything. Yeah, but he does it knowing he's got a safety net of, you know, he can always... The, <laughs> yeah, it's only for a month. the only point that it ever steps away from that is when he offers to renounce the throne for love. Yeah, obviously that's not going to happen. Uh, th- there was a trend, wasn't there, for rich people to do holidaying as if they were homeless. It was like a... <laughs> A homeless holiday where you live as a homeless person on the streets, but you're only doing it as like a novelty for you know a night or two, and it's not really the same as that being your existence. And and I think you know it's like when when politicians live on income support for a week, it's easy for exactly. a week. You can do it for fifteen weeks. <laughs> exactly. That's what Semi's there for, and I think that's why that character is nice to have as a contrast because he very quickly gets fed up with this and it's like oh this is crap let's just spend some money and like do really cool things you know he's there to show that Akeem is a lot more uh, kind of cool with it all and I, I think you know if you want to put it into real terms yeah okay he's not really worried he's got the safety net and whatever but as a character in a film that optimism that chirpiness that he brings to it is a really nice part of the character and it just makes him extremely likable and you can understand why this woman would fall in love with him and everything uh, i guess all i'm saying is i like Kenny murphy <laughs> in this yeah. i think yeah he's in this film he's an incredibly likable character but it does always play as a bit unrealistically lovely well can we can we sort of move towards the end of the film because i really don't like the end of the film i'll tell you why yeah. We get this sort of, um, not quite the resolution, but the, where it all comes together at the end, it's McDowell's house. It, Mr. McDowell's found out that he's a prince and he's trying to set his daughter up with him because mm. he's seen the dollar signs. The king and the queen arrive and you've got Daryl knocking on the door. And it, it, it's farcical. I don't like farce. It, it's like they even play that sort of farcical music in the score. It's farcical, <laughs> but it's kind of, when farce is done well... It's because it becomes incredibly intricate, almost to the point of self-parody. You know, your likes of Frasier and Graham Linehan sitcoms and so on do farce very well, whereas here it's just straight down the line farce. With it's just oh, he's fallen over when running to the stair, running to the door. Exactly, and it's so. <laughs> so I agree. It's just kind of like it. It feels almost like the stakes of the film and the world of the film have become much smaller because it does just mm. become this very domestic feeling set of issues and also yeah. you know our ultimate ending is that you know he's getting married to this arranged marriage he's just accepted it and then oh it's her actually under the veil yeah, i want to know what the mechanics are from when they left each other on the train <laughs> to a few days later there's a ma- how did how, how did they get her there how do who went back to her and said i know you've just said you don't love him and you don't want to get married to him but actually he does love you. Do you want to? Do you want to just come over to Africa and get married? I don't. I don't buy it. <laughs> it was the, it was his mother. She sorted it all out. Because it's because right at the end we see the mother says to James Earl Jones like, "Well, you know, you've 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 uh, another fine mess you've gotten us into." And then they've obviously gone to her and said, "Look, I know I said he was it, so so is Royal Oaks, but actually he loves mm. you. We think." Would you like to come to Africa, leave your entire life behind, and get actual married? You know what though? I the way it's played. 
you do get a sense of she's pissed off about feeling like she's been lied to, a lie of omission. But I think it's played really well because you do get the sense from all of that that she's kind of like... The second he explains things, she's kind of like, oh, okay, that's pretty reasonable, and I'm actually, like, I'm still yeah, I, I need to just, like, vent and be pissed off, but he, it it plays like she's not going to be pissed off, and she's going to be kind of into yeah. him again in ten minutes' time. So, yeah. I think that's okay. And I, I like that scene on the subway. I, I think, if anything, they they struggled to find a nice big cinematic conclusion for the film. But for what it is... So they just nicked it from Crocodile Dundee instead. <laughs> oh, you're right, it is. Yeah, it's on the platform. But I, I think that ending works because we've spent the time building the relationship and we kind of, like, that feels right. Yes, the actual ending, it's just a bit trite and not really realistic. I think it works for what it is. It's a silly comedy film, and it, you know, I don't need too much. Because right at the beginning, he basically sees her and he's like, oh, yeah, she's the one. That's the bit that I don't like, that he, he stumbles upon this woman who's perfect and he's going to fall in love with so quickly and easily. Well, exactly, but then the next hour of stuff does establish that, you know, at least there is some connection there. But yeah. What happened to that poor African girl who'd been raised to marry him? I did wonder that. She's still in the fucking side room barking like a dog. Yeah, we we haven't mentioned there's a, a bit of a cameo appearance from Ralph Bellamy and Donna Mecci. I I did want to bring this up. This is one of my two notes. Here's an interesting thing. There's a reference to trading places, as you said. And there's also a scene really early on where Eddie Murphy breaks the fourth wall and looks to camera. Yeah. As he he does in a couple of his other films. And Daryl does it. But he never does it again. It's really just really weird... Yeah, I think that's a John Landis thing. Because <laughs> Eddie Murphy does that in early on in Trading Places, doesn't he? And and that's what made me think of it when we see Don Amici and Ralph Bellamy. You can feel a John Landis touch here. There's a mm. lot of like just little little comedy looks, you know, character little look aside and, and stuff like that, which is very John Landis, um, but works nicely. Mm. It's, it's funny stuff. You talked about cameos. Did did you all notice Cuba Gooding Jr. getting his hair cut in the bar? <laughs> yes, I did. I don't know if I would have noticed, but I saw his name in the credits and sort of put the two to, together. But No, he doesn't say anything. He's just sat there mute, isn't he? Yeah. That Trading Places cameo... Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the two actors appearing as their characters from that film. If anyone yes. hasn't seen Trading Places, what is it? These this two rich will mean guys. nothing to you, so don't worry about well, it. Well, that's what I want to say. <laughs> I, I think I saw Coming to America before I saw Trading Places, and so it didn't mean anything to me. And now that I know what it is, I don't like it as much. Or, you know, having <laughs> never seen the film, I was presented with Eddie Murphy handing a w- huge wad of cash to these homeless guys, them thanking him, and then you know they them looking down at the money in the hand, g- getting you know overjoyed, can't believe what they've got, and then one of them says, "Mortimer, we're back," and that's the end of that. <laughs> and then, and I love that. I'm very uncomfortable with the concept of an Eddie Murphy cinematic universe. <laughs> but I think if I, I think it's funnier the notion of these two homeless men being handed money and then one of them shouts Mortimer, we're back. And like they And it yeah. works because and because they've got like posh accents yeah. and they're like older white guys, it's just like there's it tells a little I, that's story. It. I think that's itself, funnier. It teases a story, doesn't that's it? funnier yeah. than it is if you have seen trading places and you know that they're two formerly <laughs> incredibly rich men Racist. who've lost all their money and become, <laughs> you know, homeless and 
but I do like that's I do like that moment. We didn't talk about the scene in the nightclub where there's the sound of sort of beauty parade of potential oh, uh, girlfriends. I know comedy that was bit. pretty horrific. Get stereotyping, wasn't it? <laughs> as a comedy bit as well, you could do it so much better. Well, I, I've seen that exact bit in a number of rom-coms. I've seen it done very well. I, I think the forty-year-old virgin is. Uh, the one that springs to mind from a, you know, one that I did find funny and so on. But that's obviously your classic, let's get a load of people into improv and whittle it down to two minutes we actually find funny sort of thing. It's essentially a speed dating scene, isn't it? But before speed dating was a thing. So mm. it, there's no real context of why they're getting through so many Yeah, women. why are all these women coming over and sitting and chatting to them? <laughs> two separate sets of twins. Going for the twin yeah. joke yeah, twice. Yeah, we'll do that joke twice. It's so funny. We can make it work twice. Yeah. But of course, the the real the the real high point of the scene is uh, Arsenio Hall in a in a wig and a dress. That, that's the joke, isn't it? Because what he says isn't funny. <laughs> oh, oh no, he's, he's playing a sexually aggressive woman. That's yeah. the joke. That's it. That is the joke. But that's obviously something they just did in the moment. Arsenio Hall went like, "Give me a wig, and I'll make some sexually aggressive remarks." <laughs> they hadn't scripted it all. It's that's hang on. Is he? He's he's playing a cis woman because I just assumed he was supposed to be a, a trans woman. Who knows? Does it matter? Does this it is nineteen eighty-eight, Saul. We didn't have things like cis women. Well, exactly, <laughs> and that's why it's just like a solid joke in an eighties movie. Is just this is actually you know someone with a penis. And they're chatting up this man, and he doesn't know any better. And then you've got the added layer of it being Eddie Murphy, who you know, in his personal life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, actually, when I watched it, I thought that's supposed to be a woman. She's just particularly masculine. That's the joke, mm-hmm. and it's Arsenio Hall. I don't think I thought any further than that. Well, I, I just thought it was your classic man. New York's so different to this country. This guy's from. They have uh, trans women here. You'd never believe it. I can tell you for a fact, we didn't say trans women. Yeah, I know you didn't, but I'm, again, I don't want to... I'm using language I deem appropriate to refer to things from the past. I, I, I'm... One of the scenes that really made me laugh, when they arrive at Queen's, they uh, they have all their luggage stolen, and then the next morning they go outside and everyone's wearing all their African clothes. And, <laughs> yeah. and there's a kid, like a seven-year-old kid, that goes past on a skateboard in a little velvet jacket. And I thought... Which one of those two had a child's smoking jacket in their <laughs> luggage? Um, do you know what I've noticed about 80s films um, with Eddie Murphy is that, you know, there's, there's always like a leading lady, you know, someone, uh, the love interest. And it's always an actor I've never heard of and never done anything else. <laughs> How come in this case, um, I'll have to look up her name because <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. Uh... What else was she in? So it's Shari Headley who plays Lisa. Very good actor, like no no problems here at all. But like then what? I mean, she's got a, she's had a career, you know. Don't get me wrong, but but I don't know what's that about. You just can't upstage Eddie Murphy, I guess. Is it a factor of the lack of opportunities, the lack of female comedic leading ladies in the eighties? It's not a comedy role, is it? It's just not many opportunities for women, especially uh, not white women. I can't think of any other African American actresses of about that age. Is <laughs> either is either because I'm racist or Hollywood is. Let's go with Hollywood. <laughs> it said at the beginning of the film an Eddie Murphy production as well, but he's not credited as, as a producer. So I guess it's just a company, but he's not even credited as an executive producer. 
So maybe it's someone else has started a production company called Eddie Murphy Productions <laughs> and then got in touch with him. To be honest, I've never really understood all of that. <laughs> Who gets the production credit and exec producer? And Well, if it, like an executive producer usually is the people putting the money in. So they don't actually do anything in, in a practical level. They usually attend one or two meetings early on where they'll kind of go, yeah, we approve putting money into that. We, we approve that pitch, greenlight it, good. Then that's it. Yeah, and they might go, well, oh, we don't want that actor. He's not going to sell enough tickets. Here's a list of top name yeah. actors that you can have. And and sometimes, sometimes they will be someone who bought the book or source material rights, and yeah. the film is then based on that, and they'll get an exec. Basically, to be honest, executive producer is one of the most bullshit credits in the world. It can be, it can be, it can be a very important role. But ninety nine percent of the time, it's someone who did basically nothing. But that's in film, and in TV, it's the opposite way around. And TV, the most important person on a TV show, arguably, is the executive producer. It's very weird. If you're familiar with the idea of a showrunner, they are for whatever reason credited as executive producer alongside a load of people who do much less. <laughs> it's a stupid credit, basically. It should be sorted out. The producers' guild need to get on that. They do get paid very well, though. I think that's it. I think a lot of the time, executive producer means this person is on the payroll for doing nothing, and we have to figure out a way to... If you've put up the money or you've got the rights to the thing, then you get all the money back at the end. Anyway, so coming to America, uh, he's come, he's gone back again, and uh, do you want to rate? Shall we rate the film? Yeah, okay. I'll go Go first. See, I've got very happy memories of this film. And watching it this week, I'm not going to say it held up, but but it was all right. It was it was as good as I remember it. It's not. It was never my favourite film, but I think I, I talked about the barber's shop scenes that I like. I think some of the set pieces are really funny. Some of the set pieces are a bit shonky. Yeah. You know, it's. It, I, I'm not going to sing its praises as a story, but it made me laugh several times. And as I say, the the there are still loads of lines from this film that I use on a regular basis. I am going to give it nine out of ten. What? Ooh. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> well, I, I want to basically, I'll, I'll go next because I think I'm just going to echo your sentiments there. There's the odd bit where, it, like, I think after the first sort of 40 minutes, it just thought it's a bit procedural. You know, it's just, yeah, we're just moving along this plot. But it's funny enough to get away with that. It's fine. There's some moments I was laughing out loud. And I was just sat there watching it myself. I really enjoyed it. When I went to rate it, I actually had it as a 7 out of 10 on my IMDb and I've knocked it up to an 8. So I did very much enjoy the experience. Well, I was I was working towards an eight as I was talking about it then, but then as it came out of my mouth, I went nine. Well, <laughs> you can't deny that kind of instinctive yes. reasoning. I, I rate by instinct. I guess the difference here is that I don't think it's very funny. <laughs> I, <laughs> I just, to me, this is that classic light comedy in that it's not really funny it's you know everyone's not taking it very seriously but it's it's almost like a christopher columbus film tonally it's just (laughs) so yeah i i don't find it particularly funny but i like it i think it's a very charming film uh you know it, it works for what it is but to me what it is is just a kind of nice charming 80s rom com and a very good job of what it is, but for me, that's yeah, just a seven out of ten. So I and a very good, solid seven out of ten. That's fair, though. I mean, like I said, I had this as a seven, and then I just laughed so much while I was watching it, enjoyed it. This time, I was like, eh, I'll give that an eight. So that's an eight overall. Wow, very reasonable. Yeah, very good actually for a very, throwaway comedy. Yeah, very good. <laughs> 
It's much higher than we gave either Bill and Ted film for comparison. <laughs> and we love those. Yeah. That's what you get for inviting on someone who has a complete disrespect for the concept of ranking films. Well, we we picked this film because there is coming to America. Um, will be coming two. soon. They've used the two, America. right? Not yes. the T-O, the two. Coming to America like a Prince song. Has there ever been a film where the sequel is phonetically the identical title to the first film before. <laughs> Excluding one or two instances where the sequel just has the same name as the original because they were commissioned to make a remake and made a sequel instead. It, it doesn't strike uh... me like a smart move. <laughs> very confusing. Certainly, you know, on a podcast, we have to keep differentiating, you know, clarifying which film we mean. Yeah. Yeah. She called it coming back to America. Well, I is, has there ever been a film? Has there ever been a film with a num a number replaces a, a word that has been good? <laughs> America, the Second Coming. <laughs> I'm sorry, I was I was miles away. What did you say, Alan? <laughs> Has there any ever been a film where a number replaces a word in the title and it's been any good whatsoever? Yeah, <laughs> there are instances where a number replaces a single letter. Does that count? No, and I know you're going to say seven, yeah. which is the worst title in film yeah, history. I won't have it. Uh, I've but never it written is it a good like film, that, and that's a very difficult. And I, whenever mm. I'm going to rate seven, we'll do it on this film once. I will be taking a point off for the title. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's just the way it goes, uh, which is a shame because it's a great film. Uh, it's usually a, a good indicator of crapness. It's usually the number two in place of the word two, like yeah. jungle to jungle. Fucking <laughs> hell. Isn't there something with the number four and it's something forever? But yeah, good film, good film. <laughs> oh, there's got to be one. What's the one, was it 13 Ghosts, where they somehow managed to get a one and a three in it? Oh, I've never seen that, <laughs> but yeah, that is... <laughs> uh, yeah, so there is a sequel called Coming to America, in which I understand Akeem finds out he has a long-lost son in America and he comes over to do something like that. Don't know really how that's going to relate to him getting married uh, 35 years previously or whatever it is. So I'm not quite sure that's going to work. And there doesn't seem to be much information about it. There's certainly no trailer available. But yeah, Arsenio Hall's back. Uh, most of the, the supporting cast are there. You know, the parents are dead. But I don't know if they'll be um, dead in the film as well. Well, the good news is that Wesley Snipes and Tracy Morgan are both in it. So... Oh, fantastic. <laughs> am, I, am I being ironic? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? James Earl Jones is credited in, in IMDb, so Good. that might be Eddie Murphy with his face digitally implanted onto him. I'm sorry, I, I, just a genuine question. Is James Earl Jones dead? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't. Did he die? Wait, he died no. ages ago, didn't he? Wait, did he actually? Maybe he's still... Did we have this conversation last time we talked no, about No, no, because he was in The Lion King last year. I think he's still alive, Alan. Uh, he's still alive. He is uh, 89 years old and still going strong. I was convinced he died for a second there, but I realise it's just because Mufasa died. <laughs> Do you know what? I think I think it's because when we talked about Lion King, we had to look up to see if he was di he died. <laughs> and I convinced myself that he had. I know, this is, I know this is a little off topic, but I've never seen The Lion King. You say that as if that's a surprise, but I have met you. So yeah, Sol, when does Coming to America come out? Because there's no, there's no uh, trailer or anything Well, yet. we're in the middle of a pandemic, so the theatrical plans were... What's the word? Scuppered. Scuppered. Uh, Amazon Prime stepped in, much as they did with Borat 
subsequent movie film. It was their big thing this year, their big film that they were kind of like, look, we, we bought up Borat 2 and put that out straight to streaming. Amazon Prime, well, hey, we're competing with Netflix. This was meant to be in cinemas. Oh. And uh, Coming to America is the next in what I assume is going to be quite a long line of them doing that. Uh, they've spent reportedly a lot of money on buying the rights to coming to america the business of this these days so you know a film cost x amount to produce and then they make their money back from box office and then it used to be from dvd sales how does it work now so do amazon prime pay will it will it cover the cost of production how how did the production company get their money back i believe that generally speaking amazon prime have some weird thing in place whereby you get paid like one cent for every hour that someone watches of mm. your content it's something like that because i think anyone can basically upload their stuff to amazon prime but then beyond that they seem to be making deals where they just pay people a flat out fee which is certainly what they've been doing with coming to america and borat yeah and maybe both of those films got a cut of streaming you know percentages as well but i believe for borat 2 they paid reportedly i think 80 million dollars which is an exorbitant amount for a streaming uh project but it's a big event for them and they're trying to make a big show of i mean i don't know how much borat would have cost it can't be that expensive a film but 80 million should cover that shouldn't it Oh yeah, totally. Completely. Borat 2 made a very healthy profit off the back of being Mm. sold to Amazon Prime for $80 million, but uh, the first Borat made about $250 million in the cinema, so they're taking a huge hit, but they're kind of presumably cutting their losses from the the pandemic. Yeah, and I imagine coming to America is much the same thing. I expect they've been paid enough money to cover the film's budget several times over, and be happy with it but Mm. not nearly as much money as they would have made had it followed a traditional release uh which is why everyone who this is something we've spoken with calvin about a lot because he's more involved in all this sort of discussion online because of the ongoing no time to die debacle um but he gets really pissed off because lots of people will reply to his things about no time to die being delayed with who cares about the cinema who cares about the theatrical experience just put everything on streaming and it's like yeah but that doesn't actually work long term you, you can do that once in a yeah the problem is they will never be able to make those films again because you're <laughs> yeah. not going to be able to raise 250 exactly. million dollars to that's uh, it to you know Netflix can drop a hundred million dollars on a huge event thing to make a point and say, "Look, we can compete with the cinema." Once but a year, they they can do it once a year, yeah, and they can do that as a loss leader. The idea is yeah. people will buy a Netflix subscription because they're making stuff like that. But generally speaking, Netflix can't spend more than certainly nowhere close to a hundred million for a movie. Put it that way, and. Yeah, you know, in order to have films with budgets like that, you have to be able to sell them at the cinema and make a load of money there, and then all the other places you get revenue, and yeah. Not to mention things like Netflix has no back end, so with TV, traditionally, as a TV creator, you'd get, you have a hit show, you can live off it forever because it gets repeated, you're getting royalties every single time, whereas... Netflix, you get an upfront fee and that's it. And so if, if if they can only 
you know, if Amazon and Netflix can only really budget once a year, then mm. a film like Coming to America with a two in it isn't going to get made, is it? Well, to be honest, Coming to America is probably the right level of budget film that would get commissioned by Netflix or Amazon Prime in the first place. I can't imagine it's going to cost them more than... That That seems like your classic mid-level budget film. It's not a yeah. low-budget film. You, just, you wouldn't be able to get Eddie Murphy, that's all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. After... It'd just be, it'd be led by Arsenio Hall. Maybe the, the jewellery just wouldn't look as realistic, that's the problem. <laughs> oh, the outdoor scene, you know where he goes for a walk with his dad and they're in the, the jungle? It's very obviously a sound studio. <laughs> yeah, just astroturf and an elephant wanders by. Yeah, That's all you need. <laughs> so yeah, there, there's this new film coming out anyway, and are you excited? No. I'm going to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's... I think it's going to be a mess. I think it's weird that they're making this film. It feels completely unasked for. It doesn't. It's, it's, yeah, it's completely unnecessary. We, we haven't been waiting 30 years for this film. I'd like to say that I don't think they'd go there if they didn't have a good idea, but of course they would. It said he would. <laughs> yeah, you'd like to say that. Um, uh, I, I can't bring myself to be cautiously optimistic. I just think it's probably going to be mediocre at best. Hopefully I'll be proven wrong. <laughs> I'm looking forward to Golden Child 2. That's what I want to watch. <laughs> what else what else has Eddie Murphy got in the in the works in the pipeline? Well there's always room for Beverly Hills Cop 4. Nutty Nutty Professor 3. <laughs> I think it's just Beverly Hills Cop 4, yeah. No, there's Triplets, which has been in the works for ages as well, with Josh Gad inexplicably writing the script. Is that right? Yeah, Triplets and Beverly Hills Cop 4. Although, having said that, I bet you he's got some Dolomite is my name-esque project that isn't being widely reported. That's maybe I, I, I could see the Safdie brothers working with him, or some, some people like that. Maybe he's just spending more time with his kids. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of his kids are in their 30s, though. Like, they're, they're... Oh, he might be spending time with his grandkids. <laughs> yes. I'm sure we're all very sad that uh, Eddie Murphy hasn't appeared in this episode so far. Ding dong. <laughs> oh, who, who's that? Oh, I'm looking through the peephole, so you'll never guess who it is. It's a Japanese bomb. I, I want to disassociate myself from this before it happens. Don't open the door, for God's sake. Don't open the door. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to leave him out in the cold. He's an old man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's coming to America, and uh, we'll look forward to the sequel. We'll do a we'll do a diminisode uh, when when that does come out. Uh, whoever, who knows when that will be? Maybe Eddie Murphy will grace grace us with his uh, presence for that. <laughs> we can get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in the public domain. Uh, yes, if you want to sh- support the show for one dollar a month. Uh, you can you can at patreon.com forward slash dim returns and for that apart from just uh, helping us uh, pay for all our sundry expenses here you uh, do get extra content like reviews of new releases and uh, other general stuff that we just throw together but no we, we work very hard on yeah we've got a shitload of things we need to actually edit together and put up on there we've recorded a lot <laughs> that we need to get out on there thank you gareth for joining us no, you're welcome. It has been my pleasure to revisit this classic. Yes, thanks. Thanks for gracing us with your presence once again, unlike Eddie Murphy. And uh, <laughs> another little plug for the official Diminishing Returns uh, mixtape playlist on Spotify. Oh, right. uh, I mentioned this several episodes back, but this is a, 
a fun new way to listen to the show uh, interspersed with other episodes of other podcasts that we're on and songs and things that are relevant to the episode so that we don't have to put so many music clips in the show that then get copyright infringement flags when we upload the episodes to YouTube. It's good! People are people are following the playlist. They seem to be enjoying it. It's it's a good playlist. Nice. Go discover some some music as curated by myself. All right.